Hello, welcome to the Sportscast of Ideas. I'm Jeff Kidder, and today I'm joined by my Academy of Ideas colleagues, Alistair Donald and Rob Lyons, and our Australian correspondent, Charlie Pearson. Welcome, everybody. Our main discussion will be around the saga around Novak Djokovic's participation or non-participation in the Australian uh, Open Tennis Tournament, which, which begins next Monday. And we'll discuss the issues around that, why it has been controversial and how we see this playing out. We'll also have a bit of a discussion about the Ashes, which is uh, m- most of it I've already forgotten and Charlie will have to remind me as to what's happened in the past few weeks. And then we have a bit of a talk about how COVID is still affecting other sports, uh, such as football, um, as it enters its third third year. But firstly, we have to discuss the issue of the moment. Uh, Novak Djokovic turned up uh, in Australia last week, expecting to be able to train and uh, uh, prepare for his defence of the Australian tennis uh, uh, Australian Open Tennis Tournament, which he's won for the past three years. Uh, but obviously the whole thing has blown up into a major controversy. So, Charlie, if you initially could give us your thoughts on what's happening in Australia and what's happening with Mr Djokovic. Sure. I think it's a, an issue and the, the reporting of it has, has been largely about how the Australian people are sort of up in arms at the whole, at either Djokovic or I think they're also up in arms at the government itself. So it's sort of cuts two ways the resentment of Djokovic stems from his his sort of apparent um, exceptional treatment you know if he's allowed an exemption to be you know everyone knows he's unvaccinated he has an exemption he doesn't have to quarantine you know there's quite all the regular rules that anyone else uh, in his situation would have to to follow seem to have been suspended Um, and whether that's come from a state government the tennis governing body or the federal government, it seems to be sort of the, the key issue now where this exemption came from and, and sort of the overall handling of it between two levels of government and the tournament organisers is sort of the source of uh, another sort of angle into it the, to this sort of resentment and, and sort of controversy um, whereby Im- immigration and, and how who is and isn't allowed into the country is, is fundamentally a federal government role, which they seem to have delegated to the state in this instance, but then rode back on, which I think speaks to sort of the, the chaos that is still unfolding while we're recording here. You know, he still might, there's still risk that he might be uh, deported just based on the, the, the powers of the, uh, I think it's the Home Affairs Minister or the Immigration Minister can, can make a, a, an individual decision to, to deport him, you know, at, at any point. Rob, what are you reckon? Well, let's see. It seems to be like this. This, this the what, first thing: should Djokovic have been allowed in, given Australia's rules about immigration? And it is very odd that he was, because they, it does seem to be a rule about double vaccination, really, or certainly somebody as high profilely sort of unvaccinated as Novak Djokovic. But I'm not quite clear about whether the past uh, infection really is a, a proper exemption or not. Then there's the, 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 the question of whether those rules are, in fact, sensible. I mean, we had the same discussion in the, the UK about South Africa being put onto a red list and you'd have to quarantine if you came from South Africa or various other Southern African countries for a while. But once the, the Omicron variant was well established in the UK, the government dropped those restrictions because there was just no point. It wasn't going to seed a, a new variant into 
the country the others keeping the stable door bolted long after the horse had gone so that that was dropped and whether that makes any sense for australia to continue to have such strict immigration rules which at the end of the day hurt australian citizens considerably as well uh, is another matter and then there's there's all the different layers about whether people like Djokovic himself or not, whether he was arrogant, whether in fact there's there's a case for special treatment when you're having a sports tournament, and uh, you know, whether a few exceptions uh, um, to the rules uh, is um, acceptable. So there's all these different layers to this um, debate, and obviously then we've also got this Ferrari over whether Djokovic is actually being truthful about having had COVID uh, in December. Uh, considering that there seems to be evidence that his beh- behaviour belies that um, he seems to have been travelling around and meeting people, not in a way you would expect somebody who was isolating after being testing positive would do. So people sort of wanting to be tribal and take sides about about this is is a bit awkward because it, it doesn't fit neatly along any of those sort of... Uh, sort of fault lines as it were Alistair well there's so much accusation and counter accusation around this and it's it's uh, a lot of it's based on selective leaks of particular documents or or off the record briefings it's, it's it's no wonder that it's quite difficult to um ascertain exactly what's going on which means that in a way I think it's worth taking note of what the judge uh, who heard the appeal yesterday said, which seems to be one of the, you know, one of the most straightforward and on the record things. And he seemed to be saying that uh, the rules were supplied, uh, applied selectively rather than across the board. Uh, and he, he he appeared to to say that uh, Djokovic had done everything that he could be expected to do to provide proof of why he was exempt and that the procedures followed by the immigration officers on his arrival were not ones that you would expect because he was, uh, you know, had his mobile phone taken away from him and he was told uh, that he would have a certain amount of time and then that was rescinded and, 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 and all the rest of it. So to go by what the judge said yesterday, then the rules were not applied in the way that they should, having Djokovic put together a case uh, based on the medical evidence from two experts that he was he was exempt so that that does seem to be reasonably clear to me if we can go on the basis of what a judge said and it's it seems to be why the current uh uh, uh the the the, the uh, question marks over whether he'll be allowed to remain now seem to come down to the personal decision of the Australian immigration minister as to whether he wants to uh, get rid of him or not, uh, which, you know, seems to be, um, again, an application of the rules based on an individual's desire for whether he stays or not, rather than any sort of proper following of of procedures. So that's, that that seems to me to be where it is. It is worth noting that that, um, I think the rules have been for a while applied selectively in Australia. It was that case uh, where the I think it was the Australian Football League uh, were at the final. I think it was Brisbane a, a few months ago, where the the teams turned up with a massive big entourage of, of four hundred people apparently, and 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 kind of they were given exemptions 
as far as I could see anyway. There was all sorts of photos in the paper at the time taken from the air of them all lounging around swimming pools, enjoying cocktails and mixing as, as they wanted. So, And there's also been reports of uh, celebrities kind of coming and going pretty much as they please. So there's, there's obviously been a selective application of the rules in the past. It just seems to me that for what I can only assume are much more political reasons that the government has seized on Djokovic coming in and, and decided to apply the rules in a much more strict fashion uh, and, and, and invented, essentially, uh, some ways of trying to stop him playing for political ends to prove uh, that they are uh, being fairly harsh and, and treating COVID in their eyes seriously and, and, and so wanting to take the, the, the decisions to protect the Australian population in the, in the way that they're presenting it. So it does seem to be a bit of a mess, but the Australian government doesn't seem to have been uh, behaving in a particularly reasonable way. Yeah, the, that sort of confusion, I remember that the issue of the footballers travelling across state lines is sort of Again, another example of the, the chaos that reigns. The, the rules to get into Australia basically vary from state to state at the moment. So in Sydney and Melbourne, so New South Wales and Victoria, which are the two the, um, biggest states population-wise, um, you're allowed to, as long as you're double vaccinated, you're allowed to fly in from, from overseas. And uh, a negative. I know in Sydney, I think it's just a negative test. I think in Melbourne, it's a negative test and you have to quarantine until you get your negative result back and then you're free to leave. In Queensland and Western Australia, and I think South Australia, you have to still do two weeks of hotel quarantine if you come from overseas. But if you come from one of the other states, so if you can fly to Sydney and spend two weeks in Sydney, say, and then be able to fly to Queensland without having to quarantine. But if you fly to Western Australia, you still have to do your two weeks of hotel quarantine. So it's it's a bit of a mess, um, to, to, to say the least. Uneven application of rules for people, even to travel within the country. You know, the, the Gold Coast is a good example. It straddles the border between Queensland and New South Wales. And there's a, one side of the road is New South Wales, the other side is Queensland. And there was a police roadblock that you couldn't, you know, get across um, to, to, to cross, which is at, at Coolangatta, which is quite a very built up area, very usually very busy place where you could sort of, in, in any given day, you can cross the border, you know, half a dozen times. Um, and, but I think there is, there is an argument, uh, you know, about the first lockdown happened. There was, you know, after a couple of months of having no sport and none of that sort of entertainment on, it sort of, it did have, a, have an impact on sort of the, the psyche of the people, people, particularly here in Britain, and whether there is an argument that says that is, is it worthwhile giving these exemptions to someone like Djokovic who's going to come out? And he's a very good chance of, of winning the Australian Open or, in the example you gave, Alistair, of, you know, footballers being able to come and, and keep a season going to keep these sorts of some sense of, of normality in what are particularly not normal times. I mean, Djokovic has become a, a symbol bigger than himself, as it were. I mean, he always was to a point. But simply by standing there and saying... I've done this. As Alistair says, the judge himself seemed to be the most sensible person in the whole proceedings. He made some decisions and explained it, and it, that sort of made sense. But Djokovic himself has become this person that all kind I mean, I'm all, just to say, I'm as pro-vaccine as you can, but I'm all for having vaccines. I'm very keen on people having vaccines. Obviously, it should be, I'm not in favour of mandatory vaccines, but I'm very pro-vaccine in principle. Um but having said that, I mean, Djokovic has become this symbol in relation to the whole COVID epidemic. All sorts of people 
many of whom I would consider unsavory, many I uh, consider very laudable, have got onto his bandwagon and he's, he's become a kind of totem well beyond Australia, throughout the globe, in almost no time at all. And obviously, I, I would have thought Australia may be trying to defuse the situation now. Maybe they'll let him stay now because the whole thing has become so big and, the, and Australia as a country in many ways has started to look r- ridiculous, uh, you know, basically telling him that he hadn't filled in the right application, he'd done it wrong. And when the judge said, no, 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 it's all fine, they said, well, we're going to change the rules and say that he can't come anyway. I mean, to me, that makes him look ridiculous. But, you know, some people, when they're in a hole, they, they keep on digging. So has anybody got any comments on the on, on the wider sense of how he, Djokovic has become this kind of figurehead in relation to the whole COVID thing? And, and Australia itself has become almost looking rid- ridiculous by the end of it and scrabbling around trying to find a find a solution. Uh, well, I mean, the thing is, Djokovic doesn't do himself much good with some of his more eccentric ideas. And, and people have, have pointed to some of his uh, methods of like, preparation and drinking water at a certain temperature and all sorts of things. And that's something that sports people are often like, that they have very weird little um, superstitions about things, about you know, which you know, shoelace they tie first before you know, they, they go onto the field or whatever. Um, and Djokovic has got those in spades and obviously is very prone to all the sort of anti-vaccination stuff. But also, I mean, from a point of view of somebody who worries about every single thing that goes into their bodies as athletes tend to do and like they have to get exactly the right amount of protein and they take this supplement and that supplement and worry uh, his under his his nervousness about doing something that might somehow affect his performance where there's all this talk about long covid um or about vaccination reactions and all these things must be going through his mind and he must decide that i'm just going to do the natural thing obviously federer nadal all these other players are all vaccinated and i think it's all perfectly sensible to get that done so the, the, it's a kind of an, an eye-opener to the, the, the wacky world of sports people's ideas and it's, it is interesting that a disproportionate number of sports people seem to be religious and like constantly look into the skies every time they you know, score a goal or or hit a winning shot or whatever. That they they have all these belief systems in order to kind of keep themselves going. So it's it's, it's a slightly wacky world for the zero COVID lot, who are all desperate to sort of say the science says this and the science says that. This is just absolute um, catnip to them in terms of reacting against these things. And equally, for the people who have are also um, very sort of sceptical about vaccines. And there are a very wide range of people who are sceptical about vaccines, even if I disagree with them. This is also like a high-profile case that they can all just jump on. Also, what do people think? I mean, last year, I remember the same time of year, there was all kinds of, seemed like chaos before the Australian Open and people put into quarantine who hadn't been expected to be put into quarantine, people practising tennis against the bedroom walls and all this, which I mean, may still be happening this year, I don't know. But that all happened and it was like, this is like a basket case. But in the end, it ended up being a very successful tournament, which, which Djokovic won on the men's side. After all this, you know, maybe come Monday or 
come the start of the tournament, in the end of the tournament, you'll say, well, actually, after all this, it all settled down and went very smoothly. Do, do people think that might happen? Or is, is the level of chaos and resentment so much that people are going to be booing him on the court or there's going to be constant issues during the tournament itself that it just won't, just can't settle down there? It's probably worth looking at, at the, this tennis tournament in the context of some of the other things that have gone on over recent months and years. I mean, we know, for example, that sport has become a key part of the culture wars. I mean, you saw that around uh, the Euros last year, around the Olympics, that sport seems to now play this role for people to um, latch on to and, and to use it in, in a way that's uh, all about projecting their particular views depending on what side of the culture wars are on. So there's kind of, it's in a way, it's probably no surprise that tennis and, and Djokovic in particular has become uh, part of this. I mean, it, it, especially it seems that Eastern European countries and teams or, or sports people from uh, Eastern European countries have become a particular magnet to latch on to in, in, in these things. You saw that, for example, in the Hungarian football team uh, in, in, in the Euros. And the fact that Farage made a beeline for uh, Belgrade was, was quite interesting. And then that this spat developed uh, with An Andy Murray, who, who uh, had to get in his point from his, 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 his point about... Um, uh, you know, he, he basically uh, reminded Farage or, or said to Farage, well, you, you don't like Eastern Europeans in the UK, so why, why are you making a beeline for Belgrade? So there's all these kind of um, things that are, that, that, that are going on. And, and the UK press in that context do seem to have a particular attachment to hating Djokovic. I mean, you just just looking at the papers the last couple of days that there's you can almost see the attempt to dredge up quotes or or fairly unknown uh, stars or, or or celebrities get dragged into this discussion just because they've had a particular opinion or point of view to express on on, on Djokovic so it does seem to be uh, a real desire to make something of this uh, in the context of, of of today's situation how that translates Jeff just to go back to your question in terms of uh, what happens in Melbourne uh, next week i mean already you read the papers today and and uh, it's like world war three has been prepared for in, in in australia i mean people are dredging up the situation in one of the tournaments about a decade ago when serbs and croats fought within that park and in, in melbourne around the tournament um the the police have have, have obviously brought some of this speculation uh, into it by pepper spraying some of the, the the people that were out on the streets yesterday in support of Djokovic. So it does have all the makings of of being a tournament that's going to be disfigured to a certain extent by uh, all the political and cultural controversy that surrounds it. And whether <laughs> whether the tennis becomes much of a focus amongst this is 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 you know how much <laughs> the focus is on tennis itself is is quite difficult to see just now we, we should also add that australian tennis crowds are like the flip side of Eng english tennis crowd i mean english tennis crowds wimbledon strawberries and cream everybody generally but very polite and whatever australian and, and the open they're notorious for taking sides and being partisan and uh, a, a bit like uh, often in english football crowds rather than English tennis crowds. So the, there is that reputation already, often with quite a lot of banter and humour and, and whatever. So a history of those kind of things happening. So there's no reason that might not, not happen again. And they play, as people will know, right late into the night. 
is very different from from Wimbledon. Just to be just to be clear, I can't see this sort of going away. Like you know, before, it's the classic sort of before the Olympics, all the reports coming out of the city are how un, unprepared and how you know nothing will, will ever happen, and then it always happens. It, it goes everything goes smoothly, and nothing else. It's sort of it's forgotten when the sport happens. Sort of starts. Um, I think the further Novak Djokovic goes in this tournament, the more this will sort of escalate. Um, and I can't see it sort of if, if he, you know, whatever reason goes, if I, I, you know, he'll he'll almost certainly get through to the second week. Um, and you know, when it gets to the pointy end of things, I think it could sort of, you know, really roll on quite a lot because, as you say, um, the Australian crowds do very much pick favourites. And uh, I know Roger Federer is always been extremely popular over there. And Novak Djokovic has sort of been painted as the, I think somewhat unfairly as, as sort of the, the, the villain, um, probably because he sort of knocked Federer off his perch him, along with, with Rafael Nadal. Um, and yeah, that, that, that will sort of make sure that this, this keeps bubbling along. And I read a, an article this morning that said when Djokovic won the US Open last year, it was it was unusual how well received he was by the crowd and how sort of warm the reception he got was. Um, and I, if, should he win this, I can't really see it, the same thing happening. Yeah, it, in as much as I, I I said before that um, one of the problems was the lack of consistent applications of the rules in the way that that uh, Djokovic has either been admitted or perhaps will be ejected uh, in the next couple of days. I do think as well though that the problem is in part, the focus on the rules themselves. And that's become such a big thing. And the way that Charlie talked about earlier, about the, the various different rules across, you know, state lines and everybody's become in, in, in recent months obsessed either uh, to make sure that people are following the rules or to prove how they are exempt from the rules. And one of the things that now goes missing, I think, is, is the problem of the, the rules themselves. I mean, you know, there's relatively few people questioning the madness of all these rules themselves because Australia really has become a, a, a bit of a basket case, as to be said, in the last couple of years from, from the way that it's responded to COVID. Um, Yes, uh, you can you can argue rightly that 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 um, the number of deaths relatively has been comparatively low, but its transition into a zero COVID mentality and the rules that have emerged from the desire to make and and retain very low levels of COVID and stop it spreading have 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 um, I think this is what's led to the the, the kind of. Uh, slightly mad rules that they've got in place now, where not only are we arguing about exemptions over, over immigration, but, you know, you have vaccine mandates, which have been a particular focus of protest in, in Melbourne over the last few months, amongst construction workers and many other groups uh, within Melbourne society. So the problem in many ways in Australia is the rules that have been introduced, not whether you should be exempt from them or to uh, try and prove that someone shouldn't come in move on and talk to the Ashes. I mean, the, the, the fifth test has been moved to Tasmania, to Hobart, um, due to the COVID, COVID rules. Um, and uh, England have been singularly unsuccessful in the whole Ashes, uh, the, the whole Ashes campaign, uh, the current Ashes campaign, been singularly un unsuccessful. Um, 
And so, Charlie, as somebody on the, you were saying before that you you almost pity the situation England find themselves in, um, r- rather than going for the jugular for for five nil. But uh, what's what's your take on, on on that? And how much role does the Ashes play? Because it's been played in one thing has been happened is it's been played in a good spirit, which I keep making the point, which is more so than often than usual. And obviously there are various issues in Australia that might make that the case. But, I mean, does entertainment, sport play a particular role at this time, um, which means that it has a higher status or it's looked at differently than the than, 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 than previous time? The Ashes in, in Australia is always given, you know, it's always sort of the, the biggest uh, cricketing event. You know, every, it's there every, you know, four years. Um, and it, is, it always gets the, you know, the most people sort of excited and and, and following the cricket. Um, I don't. I think I. I don't think I speak for all Australians when I say I was almost disappointed with how easily we won the first test, um, and it was sort of almost a relief um, to, to to see England sort of cling on for a draw um, the other day. Um, I think you know the, the sense back home is is very much that you know we're glad, they're glad to win and, and a lot of people would wish it was 4-0 as opposed to 3-0 now. I don't think the political or COVID or whatever you want to call it situation has made it any sort of bigger or smaller deal back home. I think it's it's always a big deal and cricket's unique in, in Oz in that in summer it's the it's basically the only sport in town in, in the winter you've got you know different codes of football and, and rugby and that sort of thing sort of competing for the same audience of 25 million people in when summer rolls around cricket is is it and and the national team is what everyone follows and sort of becomes a almost an overnight expert um you know, before the melbourne test i'm not sure how many people had ever heard of um but uh, you know the, the new bowl boland um who sort of came and, and mopped england up but then within two days he was a national hero um that's sort of a, a uniquely australian experience in summer um, I think, you know, if, if there was one sort of positive to take from the England performance, I, I don't know whether it's by good management or blind luck that the only player to miss any cricket has been Pat Cummins. Um, the fact that there's been sort of small outbreaks among the England coaching staff and that sort of thing, not to bring everything back to COVID. The fact that they've managed to get, or it looks like they're going to get five tests in without any sort of, with only one player having missed one game um, is extraordinary either for good management or I suspect it's just extraordinary good luck. <laughs> oh, Alistair versus the cricket man in the office, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, as someone that's not got a direct dog in this Ashes fight, I've uh, been a, a good Scot, although I did have to, I, I was amused to receive a message from a friend in Brisbane about 13 seconds after the uh, final wicket fell in the third test and Australia won the Ashes, who was crowing mightily about how easily uh, England had been beaten, which was 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 quite amusing. Um, it doesn't, you know, it does seem to me just just to uh, go back to the thing that you were mentioning, Jeff, about the good spirit aspect of this series, because that's been notable in in a number of the articles that I've read in the paper. In fact, there's one in the Times this morning that's seen uh, remarking on what what good spirit it's 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 been played in, and that 
I suppose my first thought is, well, if it's being played in good spirit, then the chances are that Australian can, Australia can uh, play it in good spirit because they haven't had much competition throughout the course of the Ashes this time. There's been no need to really ratchet up the, the tension and, and, and uh, you know, all the, the sledging and so on and so forth, which has become such a commented feature over the last few years, not least because they have these stump mics that now pick up every, every word that's been said. And I mean, perhaps, perhaps Perhaps the, the, the lack of sledging has been people adapting to the fact that they're now being surveilled on the cricket field and, and all every bit of sledging is then regurgitated into the public sphere. But it does seem to me that, the, the, I mean, you can put forward, I suppose, good reasons as to why it might have been played in good spirit. The fact that the, the teams are you know, operating these kind of hermetically sealed environments, I suppose, and, and forced to get on with each other a bit more, or or the fact that it's taking place in a in a COVID world where perhaps people the the the, the crowd don't necessarily want to see all of the uh, uh, the tensions and the sledgings that goes on. Although I, I have to say I, I I do doubt that really because it's become part of the 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 a part of cricket really and particularly part of the ashes it's something that you you look towards but it's it's been an interesting commentary on on on, on the good spirit i think the other thing that i've picked up on um uh, just to to go back i think it was ben stokes who only six eight months ago was talking about uh, missing the tour to india i think it was uh, because of his mental health and and you know the, the cricket became uh, consumed by this mental health issue that's uh, uh, come up in tennis around the uh, Naomi Osaka thing and and uh, in gymnastics in the Olympics as well with Simone Beals. So uh, cricket having gone for the you know we need to uh, uh, think about our mental health and value that over the competition. The fact that England have been swallowed up in that to some extent <laughs> might explain why they've been so uncompetitive on the field because once you take on that mentality then it doesn't it seems to me that it, it can't do anything other than diminish the competitive spirit uh, within the sport a little bit and perhaps that's one perhaps small explanation of what, of why England have been so poor in this tournament because the mentality that they've approached it with has not been of the standard that you really need to compete in a really really tough world of Cricket. For starters, I mean, there's, there's a perennial problem now with all Test match series is that there's, the touring team rarely has much preparation before going into the first match. Um, there used to be sort of three or four warm-up games before uh, before they actually get down to sort of serious business, and um, that doesn't seem really seem to be the case anymore. And, and that's been particularly exposed in relation to the English batting. I mean, there was a bit of a niggle. Sort of, I can't remember if it was after the first or second test where Root made a slight comment that maybe the bowlers needed to be better or something. And I've, um, I think Anderson pushed back against that a bit. But the fact that England, I think they still haven't scored 300 in, in, in eight innings is testament to the fact that they're just not ready to bat in Australian conditions. And that means the bowlers have never had anything to defend. Um, uh, so it's um, so there's there's all sorts of questions about preparation, and as a result of that, it just hasn't it hasn't got to the point of being nasty because there hasn't really been really competitive at any point, really. And I can't I can't imagine some of the 
Aussies over the years have suddenly, sort of, you know, like, I mean, you think back to sort of Lillian Thompson and then you know, through to Glenn McGrath and all that stuff. They, what, it was full on, and Ben Stokes is a full on kind of cricketer as well. And the fact that that hasn't got to that place is indicative of the fact that it hasn't been tight, there hasn't been tension. And the most tense thing was England batting out that final day um, in the fourth test. But that's that's it, really. It's been such, such one-way traffic that there hasn't been any point in getting nasty about it. And, um, yeah, so there's all sorts of questions about preparation for tours, the fact that home teams just predominate in winning any series now um, in Test Match cricket, and whether English England in general, have been so keen to focus on one-day cricket, both domestically and internationally, that they've just lost the, lost the plot a bit in terms of being able to uh, be a competitive test match team, particularly abroad. England are just not good enough. And then that's combined with the personnel side, where the, the captain is quite a good batsman, Root, but the only good batsman, but he's not a particularly good captain. It's, just, it's not really his thing but there's nobody else. Whereas Australia, I mean, they got rid of Payne, Cummins. I mean, whatever happens, there's a, a captain in waiting. There's so many captains in waiting in the Australian team. Whereas England have got one captain, who in my view shouldn't really be the captain, and the coach is hasn't got a clue, uh, uh, Silverwood. I mean, I, I don't know what it is. It's like that guy who was interviewed, who went for a uh, job interview at the BBC and then ends up being interviewed on world affairs or something. I mean, it's like completely out of his depth, hasn't got a clue. And uh, that combined with the fact that they're generally, some of the points Rob raises and they, they're generally not good enough, means that you, they just haven't got a chance. They've picked the wrong team until the fourth test, really. And they wouldn't say, they wouldn't admit they picked the wrong team. Uh, and you know, it's just, even though everybody was telling them at the beginning of the match, you picked the wrong team, they wouldn't accept it. It's just the whole the whole thing. We just didn't, didn't stand it. Didn't give themselves a chance. But anyway, um, Charlie, anything you want to finish off on on, on the Ashes? And in terms of going back to your yours and Alistair's point about the spirit of the game, I think you're right. The players, I think the players also know each other better because like they all play together in different um, sort of domestic formats as well. I think that that helps. And there has been a shift since the. Um, what sandpaper gate a few years ago in this sort of Australian mentality. I think you know that's obviously where that's come from. As far as the mental health sort of side of that sort of change in approach goes, I just wonder whether that I mean it's obviously bit they've obviously been more explicit about it in the last sort of 12 months or so. But I do remember in that the infamous 2013-14 series when um it was Jonathan Trot. Was Jonathan Trot retired in the middle of the series, you know, because he just bit, he was basically admitted, you know, he just couldn't play Mitchell Johnson. I think I, I you know, you can't really knock him for that. Um, if you know, I had Mitchell Johnson bowling at me more often than not, I'd probably give the game away too. Um, so I, whether, I don't know whether that's just whether they've been more explicit about that sort of concern, but it's sort of been was it maybe a pre existing sort of attitude. I, I'm not really sure, particularly English cricket. Yeah, I mean, the only other, the only other sort of question I would have is as someone who follows cricket over here in England a lot you know the, the easy sort of thing to hammer them about is the domestic the state of the domestic sort of cricket and you know county cricket's played in basically April and October now um, and you're expected to go down over and pick it, uh, 11 players who can three or four of the best bowlers in the world um, on you know hard Australian pitches having not played any real sort of long form cricket 
in sort of June, July and August in, in England, I think is, is something that will be looked at. I don't know if there's a few people that have said that that's, you know, another area where England needs to sort of change its attitude and, and, and improve. Okay, and, and any other things people would like to discuss before we uh, bring the podcast to a close? I suppose, I suppose one, one thing is um, the whole fiasco and Chester, the fact that the, the club's address is in England, the car park is in England, but the ground is in Wales, and therefore they've been banned from having crowds at their games, is, just shows the ludicrousness of it and the way in which... Uh, bureaucracies cannot cope. There's no flexibility at all, and it is it is just a, a ridiculous situation where they could have been pragmatic about that, but they have they've chosen not to be, and um, uh, says very much about the current Welsh administration um, as much as anything else. Yeah, I think what Rob says is right, and the uh, Scottish medical advisor Jason Leach yesterday was forced to admit that the rules that have been introduced in Scotland over the past three, four weeks, since just before Christmas, uh, which has taken the crowds out of football and and uh, uh, forced all sorts of new regulations and uh, on pubs and nightclubs and basically uh, taken people out of the public sphere, to be quite honest, because uh, Scotland over Christmas was a relatively dead place where people just weren't out and about a lot of the time. But uh, it, it, Leach was forced to admit that these haven't had an impact in terms of bringing down the case numbers in Scotland. Scotland. In fact, the case numbers in Scotland are higher uh, now than they are in England. And it's the same with Wales, actually, which also uh, face greatly increased regulation. So I think it's quite interesting, uh, the current situation, because we are, we do appear to be living through a moment where people are starting to question all sorts of different aspects of the, the COVID situation, whether it's, it's, it's vaccines, and, you know, there's a whole argument around that, uh, how right that is, or whether it's the rules around uh, isolation or um, social distancing or continued mask wearing, where people are becoming a little bit more skeptical, skeptical of the reasons for continuing these things, that we do have, have arrived now in a situation where we have direct comparisons between different countries in the UK that are exposing some of the, um, well, the questionable nature of these rules and, and, and the, the, obviously the, the situation in, in, Chester, in, in Chester around the ground is, 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 a, is a case in point because it's directly on the border. But there's also uh, questions around whether Scotland and Wales continue to hold the Six Nations rugby and uh, or whether they get moved to other grounds in England, which is then creating a kick on effect uh, in, in particularly in Cardiff, who worry about the uh, loss, the economic loss of not hosting those those huge rugby games, which bring all sorts of people into Cardiff across the across the course of the weekend. So I, th I think we're just at a situation now where an interesting situation where people are starting to question much more uh, some of the continued rules and regulations and the very direct evidence from the different countries is is adding fuel to that uh, scepticism okay thank you all for taking part uh, plenty of food for thought and we'll revisit many of these issues in another future sportscast of ideas thank you